1: Welcome to New Books Network. My name is Clayton Girard. My pronouns are he, him. And today I am here with Dr. Claire Forsti, author of Queering the Midwest, Forging LGBTQ Community. Queering the Midwest highlights the ambivalence of LGBTQ lives in the rural Midwest, where LGBTQ organizations and events occur occasionally, but are generally not grounded in longstanding LGBTQ institutions. Drawing on in-depth interviews and ethnographic observation, Claire Forsty offers the story of a community that does not fit neatly into a narrative of progress or decline. These ambivalent communities in small Midwestern cities challenge the ways we think about LGBTQ communities and relationships and push us to embrace the contradictions, failures, and possibilities of LGBTQ communities across the American Midwest. So thank you so much for being here with me today, Dr. Forsty. I wonder if you'd begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself.
0: Totally. Thanks, Clayton. I appreciate the introduction. And it's so nice to hear someone else talk a little bit about your book. So thank you. I'm happy to be here
1: talking about it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, me too. So um, I'm Claire Forsey. I use she and they pronouns. Um, I live in South Minneapolis, Minnesota, right now with my partner and my five-year-old and our two butthead cats. And I also like to share that I live on... um, occupied, unceded Dakota land. And every time I do a little land acknowledgement, I try to pair it with a little action. And so I just want to mention briefly um, that this time I'm planning to make a donation to the Minnesota Indian Women's Resource Center. Um, I think it's important that our actions reflect what we say. So I currently yes, I definitely
1: appreciate that.
0: Yeah, yeah, I could say a lot about that. But that's not the focus of my book. So <laughs> yes, we definitely want to move beyond performative actions. Mm-hmm. And there's certainly a connection to that, I think, a little bit in my book about what it means to do something performative versus actually show up right in various ways. So we'll get there. Um, I currently work at the Center for Educational Innovation at the University of Minnesota, and that is a system-wide teaching center um, that supports faculty and instructors across the whole university system. That's my day job, but by night. I am a secret, uh, research have secret research superpowers, not so secret. I research queer and trans communities and their possibilities for the future. That's kind of my general focus. I earned my PhD in sociology from Northwestern University back in 2017, which feels like a lifetime ago. My focus was on gender and sexuality. But fun fact about me, I also have a second master's degree beyond sociology in something called... American and New England studies from a program at the University of Southern Maine um, that unfortunately was shut down several years ago. And it's a real bummer because communities, that kind of understanding of region, communities is really important to me. So that community context, asking questions about um, when we're talking about LGBTQ people, who are we talking about? Where do we live? Are we talking about kind of the standard great cities of New York City, San Francisco, even here in the Midwest, Chicago, we're talking about smaller cities, rural contexts. Um, I've lived in many different smallish cities across my lifespan. And so I always am asking the question, who are we talking about? Where are they from? What is their community life like? So that's a little bit about me and kind of what motivates this work.
1: Awesome. Thank you for that great introduction. I'm excited to see how a lot of these different themes show up in the conversation that we have, Mm -hmm. especially this topic of place, which, um, you know, sometimes we overlook how integral place and region can be for people's lives. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, just to start off, I wanted to say that I found your book to be very compelling. And living in the Midwest myself, I can easily envision a lot of the different situations and settings that you describe. So I appreciate the texture that looking at the context of the Midwest can bring to ways we're thinking about and studying LGBTQ community. Um, So to start off, could you tell us a little bit about how this book came about for you?
0: Yeah, totally. So um, we got to take a little bit of a trip back in time. So my thinking about this book um, actually starts way back in the year 2005. Um, This was in that first master's degree program. And I learned that year that um, a local Portland, Maine lesbian bar where I was living at the time was about to close. It was the only remaining, at the time, the only remaining lesbian bar north of Boston, between Boston and Canada. And I had a lot of friends in the community who were really mourning the loss of that bar. But I also had a lot of friends in the community who were a little bit, had some hesitation about the bar and its meaning to them. So um, in particular, my trans friends who had been, felt excluded from the space of the bar in some ways. And so that in that project, I was um, interviewing former patrons of the bar, some of the staff who worked at the bar, folks who really felt like it was a space of home, but also folks who felt ultimately pretty excluded from that space. And I did some writing about that, um, using the, the term bittersweet to describe the closing of the bar, because on the one hand, folks felt really bitter about it closing and really sad. They lost that community space. But for some, they also had felt excluded even while the bar was open. So, my thinking about kind of LGBTQ communities really began in that earlier research. And fast forward a few years to graduate school, a dubious choice in my life. <laughs> this is this true for many of us? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I was really digging into the literature on LGBTQ communities, finding a lot of research on urban lgbtq communities urban gay communities in particular and as with a lot of this kind of research i think not seeing a lot that reflected my experience as someone as a queer person as a non-binary person who grew up in a small town on the east coast who's lived in small cities and who's really felt welcomed in those small cities for a variety of reasons that are complicated has to do with privilege and race there too We'll get into it, don't worry. Um, and feeling, so again, feeling like where is the um, kind of narrative of what I later learned was the majority of LGBTQ people's experiences. Most of us actually live in small cities. So if you're curious about that, you can see in the book there's a little bit of definition about, and then some of my other writing about what do we mean by small cities? What does that include? But um, really feeling like there needed to be some understanding of the experiences of folks who live in those kinds of communities. Again, make a long story even longer, I found myself living in a small Midwestern city and thinking this is not the kind of city that folks are saying is the most friendly city in the world, but it's also not the kind of city where folks are saying it's a terrible place to live if you're LGBT or Q. Um, It's an example of what my uh, colleague and friend, Amy Stone, calls ordinary cities. She has this call for much more research on ordinary cities. And it was a really good opportunity to dig into this question of what is life like in these small cities for LGBTQ people, thinking really broadly about who's under that LGBTQ umbrella? Um, And what are the possibilities for community in those spaces? What are the possibilities for change? And it maybe won't be super surprising that I didn't actually find a utopia in this city that I studied, River City, but I also didn't find a dystopia, right? So this is kind of the root of this both and ambivalent framing, which I can talk more about in a bit. But I do want to add one other thing. So my research in this city really is enabled in some ways by my identities So as a white person, as someone who is not from the Midwest, but who has family in the Midwest, um, as someone who was raised Catholic, as someone who um, has a family, these are the kinds of things that were, that made it easy for me to get along in River City and made it easy for me in some ways to be invisible. I think there's a lot to be said about the privilege of invisibility And I think if I had had different identities, this research would have looked different and in some ways might have been harder. So whenever I'm thinking about a research project, I'm always thinking about my own identities and experiences in relation to the folks I'm talking to, right? And what are our commonalities? What am I able to see that other folks can't? And what am I not able to see by virtue of my identities and experiences? So um, this book really does come from kind of my uh, perspective in a lot of ways and my experiences. So, you know, for me, part of my interest in that book does come from my perspectives, but also has its limitations as a result of that. So as you can see, I'm ambivalent about everything, (laughs) including my own identities and my research. Um, But that's a really important piece of story whenever we're conducting research. So as you mentioned, I uh, conducted interviews with 54 LGBTQ people and allies, and I observed a whole bunch of both LGBTQ events, um, events that I learned or suspected were LGBTQ friendly in various ways, and some events that I knew would not be (laughs) LGBTQ friendly. Um, I didn't write about this, but I did um, go to observe a mixed martial arts event which was fascinating. And I um, have some thoughts about that. But there most of the work that I did was um, observing events that I where I thought I would find my participants, and I thought I might find a sense of community. So that's kind of the story of how my book came to be.
1: Nice. Thank you for giving us an insight into that little journey. I really Mm -hmm. appreciate you situating the role of privilege in how this book came about and positionality because we often recognize that in the book as you know we're talking about different people or different themes but recognizing the researchers positionality and what doors were opened and what doors were closed is really helpful in Mm -hmm. digesting the research and what we can learn from Mm -hmm. you know what's written so I appreciate you going over that it's really insightful to hear and like like I said earlier there's a lot that i can just envision from my everyday life here in this book and i really Mm -hmm. liked how you brought up the idea of like ordinary cities and just like that ordinariness of like you know you mentioned at one part that there isn't necessarily a gay bar at Mm -hmm. one point in time like Mm -hmm. it closed and then there wasn't really a replacement or anything and Mm -hmm. that's kind of something that where i'm at here in one of the most liberal towns in Kansas, like Mm -hmm. it's still just very ordinary. And there's not really a gay bar, but it's like not really homophobic in any way. Some Mm -hmm. people can find acceptance. So there is a lot of that ambivalence. So I'm excited Mm -hmm. to be able to talk with you more about how that shows up. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the first questions that I wanted to ask is about this idea of urban migration and Mm -hmm. people's locality. So a common trope in a lot of narratives of queer community is this urban migration phenomenon where queer folks can presumably find opportunities to experience community and acceptance and belonging in larger cities. So can you tell us about River City, this city that you locate your research within, queering the Midwest, troubles the binaries of like this liberal urban city versus conservative rural town? And what are some of the nuances and takeaways from this research and spaces that kind of trouble those kinds of binaries?
0: Totally. I like to kind of joke, even in my teaching work right now, that I don't like any kind of binary. (laughs) And so, but before we get there, I think we also need to understand the binary First. So, you know, so let me just kind of explain that a little bit. So there is um, quite a bit of research on gay migration to major cities. And there is a history for that, right? Um, you know, I'm thinking about the book Queer New York, which really documents that experience in New York City. I'm thinking about books from colleagues of mine, that there really was a migration from rural spaces to cities across time, and that still does happen. And there's also been a kind of a resistance to the narrative that that's something that all LGBTQ people need to do, right? That's the idea of metro normativity that Jack Halberstam writes about. It's the idea that um, if you decide to stay in a small city or a rural space, that there's something wrong with you, right? That you, of course, all LGBTQ people wanna to move to cities, right? Um, and we know that's not totally. true. <laughs> right, totally, totally. Um, and there there are benefits and drawbacks, right? Um, and there's uh, quite a bit of research about rural LGBTQ lives. So I'm thinking about Mary Gray's work out in the country, um, particularly about LGBTQ youth in rural spaces. Um, of course, LGBTQ folks exist, everywhere, right? In rural spaces and cities in the suburbs. So any kind of community context has LGBTQ people in it. Um, And again, neither of those kinds of spaces, urban, rural, neither of them are utopias and neither of them are dystopias either. The question to ask is who's in these spaces, why? What kinds of community are possible? Why do people decide to stay or go? what kinds of community um, can change over time, what types of communities are likely to be successful in those spaces, depending on kind of the local historic dynamics, the local racial dynamics, class dynamics, um, to really understand how that informs what kind of community these spaces are. So it's not to say that if you live in a city or a rural context or a small city, your life's gonna be great or it's gonna be terrible Those kinds of spaces work for some kinds of people, but not others. And so for me, the benefit of looking at River City was to understand really in depth in that one particular context, what kinds of people tended to do pretty well and felt pretty comfortable and welcomed in a place like River City and what kinds of people were like, get me out. I need to move to another small city. So many, several of my participants who did leave didn't actually migrate to big cities, They move to other small cities. So, you know, that's an important dimension to consider here. Where do people go when they leave? It's not necessarily this kind of linear um, sense of movement or migration. Understanding those local dynamics are really key. So, you know, again, I was pretty sure I wouldn't find a secret queer utopia (laughs) hidden somewhere in River City. There were amazing people and amazing events that would occur. Um, And, you know, it also wasn't the flip side of that, right? So the benefit of kind of thinking about unpacking these binaries by doing an in-depth study of a place like River City is, I think it also helps us to think better about cities and rural spaces too, and even suburbs, other kinds of spaces. So it helps us to unpack our assumptions a little bit about, well, again, in this city or in this neighborhood, in this city, who really feels welcome I know my colleague Theo Green is doing some of this work or has done some of this work on Chicago, right? Who feels welcome in these communities and who really doesn't? So those kinds of questions about what are the local dynamics here versus just assuming that a city is more welcoming or rural spaces are terrible, um, what does that really mean? What does that look like? That was kind of what I was thinking and unpacking that rural urban binary, kind of resisting some of those narratives of metro normativity, and thinking through that in a particular context in the context of River City.
1: Yeah, I think that's very helpful. And it does, um, it's pretty successful in the book, the ways that you talk through it. So I appreciate you bringing that nuance to conversations of not, you know, falling into this binary, but exploring the spaces in between or that Mm -hmm. fall outside and recognizing that it's not, you know, all uniform every small city isn't the same so like mm-hmm. there are some small cities that people feel welcome in and some that they don't um, mm-hmm. so to also ground our conversation a little bit you use the concepts of post-gay fairly mm-hmm. often um, I wanted to see if you could describe what that what you entail in that concept and mm-hmm. how it differs from you know terms like post-queer and mm-hmm. how that analysis showed up in your research with River City.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to cheat a little bit. <laughs> I'm going to cheat. <laughs> <out> by, <there. laughs> I'm, so I'm actually gonna, I think you'll be okay with this cheating. Um, I am going to talk a little bit about post-gay. I'm also going to talk a bit about post-lesbian too. I don't talk much about that that term in the book, but I do in some of my other work and I want to kind of fold it in here. And I'll talk a little yeah, bit definitely. about post-queer too. I don't actually talk, and it's probably not appropriate for me to be talking about post-trans I think there's been a little bit of literature on that concept, I think trans histories and gay, lesbian, by queer histories are intertwined, but they're not the same thing. And so I'm not going to focus too much on the, the concept of post trans and uh, for a variety of reasons. I think we're not there yet. I, I don't even know if we're ready to have that conversation. So I'll start with post gay. So the idea of post gay is not a new idea. So this is a concept that emerged in the early 90s, really. Um, And it came out of this idea that, well, maybe for gay men, maybe there is a time, maybe it's in the 90s, maybe it's in the future, when being gay is not the most important thing about gay folks. Maybe it's a part of who gay folks are, but not super central, and not necessarily the place folks wanna focus. Um, and there was a lot of g- debate about that idea in the 90s. And since then, there's been a lot of literature about this idea. So my friend Amin Ghaziani writes about this in his book, There Goes the Gaberhood looking at Chicago and making this argument that I find really useful, that he's arguing that in urban gay communities, they tend to follow this trajectory. So they start out in, in kind of, with kind of a closeted sensibility where folks don't feel safe to be out. And then they pass through this kind of coming out phase where gay folks can be more visible and comfortable and out. And he's presenting some evidence that maybe that community is arriving in something called a post-gay moment. And that's again, the idea where gay identities are less central to gay folks' lives. And I think there's some reason to be kind of worried about that. So I think for me, what's useful about that is a couple of things. So first of all, I don't think that Amin Gaziani s- says that every community is going to go through that linear process, but you know, there are elements of that that are helpful. As a concrete matter in the space of River City, we might think of that kind of closeted coming out post-gay line as more of a circle because it's a very fine line in my observation between post-gay and closeted. So what I mean by that is When someone says to you, for example, I don't care about your identity, or I don't care who you are, it kind of means two things. So on the one hand, it means I accept you as you are, I love you no matter what, and on the other hand, sometimes it means I don't wanna hear about your identity. I don't wanna hear about all that weird gay stuff, right? I don't want to hear about it. And so there's a little bit of kind of a dual meaning when folks talk about, well, I accept you no matter what. I accept you despite your identity, right? So that kind of showed up a little bit in my research. And I, that showed up in the way that folks talked about their friendships. And we can talk about that in a bit. But also as a practical matter, what was useful to me about the concept of post-gay is I was using it to ask people to think about the future and what they were really hoping to see. So in my research context, what I heard from my LGBTQ participants is basically three things. So on the one hand, nobody said that we were in a post-gay moment. Nobody was like, yep, we're there, we've arrived. Nobody felt that way. And I suspect this research was done in 2015, 2016. I suspect if I went back there now, that would be even stronger, right? I don't know that anybody is feeling that way right now for a whole host of political reasons. and. What was useful about that was that folks said, okay, so we're not in a post-gay moment right now, but I would love to get there in the future. I would love to get to a place where being gay or bi or queer or other identities were not the most important thing about me. I want that kind of to go away. There were other folks who said, you know, sounds good in theory, but I think we're always gonna need LGBTQ spaces. And there was a third group of folks who said, I don't ever want to be post-gay. This is, my identities are really, really important to me. This is central to who I am. I always want to be out and I want folks to know that these identities are part of who I am and I celebrate gay culture and I celebrate queer cultures. That's important to me. So getting people to think and talk about futures, I think using this idea of post-gay was really helpful. I will say kind of quickly, I don't want to belabor this, but um, post-lesbian, That concept has been around as long as lesbians have been around because patriarchy. And what I mean by that is, you know, the literature, if we look at the literature on LGBTQ communities, much of it is focused on gay community. We have a bit focused on lesbian communities, um, but you know, lesbian research on lesbian communities is really small compared to research on gay communities. So there's always been this argument that, you know, are we post lesbian? Does anybody care about lesbians? Are lesbians invisible? Are lesbians disappearing? And I wrote about this in a, an article called Disappearing Dykes, which is maybe my favorite title of an article I've ever written. It's Disappearing Dykes with a question mark because it's meant to look kind of, yeah, right? See, now everybody wants to read it. Um, And if you can't access it, folks should email me, find me and email me. Um, I will send it to you for free. Don't be paying money for these things. Sorry, publishers. So um, yeah, so I argue that across time, right, there's always this belief that lesbians are just about to disappear. And it has to do with the lack of relative visibility of lesbians, I think. Um, And it's a little more complicated than that. But The other piece of this is post-queer. And what scholars mean by post-queer is this idea that non-normative spaces are disappearing. So my friend Jay Orn writes about this in their book, uh, Boys Town, also focused on Chicago. Um, Jay writes about what they call sexy communities and visible sexuality and the disappearance of those spaces as the disappearance of spaces that are not normative. Right? So queer all about what is normative and what's not. And so the idea of post-queer is the idea that those non-normative spaces are going away, and that folks don't feel that they need them so much anymore. So similar kind of idea with um, how things are changing over time. And I wonder if that is worth thinking about futures too. What is it that folks actually want to see in their communities in the future? So for me, this these post ideas, but rather than whether they sort of reflect actually what's true, getting people to think and talk what they want to be about what they want to be true in the future is kind of how I use them in this book.
1: Nice. I think that's really interesting, allowing people to kind of their own spin on what the futurity is and how these kinds of concepts can open that door mm-hmm. um so you've mentioned a little bit about ambivalence within lgbtq communities mm-hmm. and you mentioned earlier that you use the term like bittersweet to capture some of those things when you were talking about the bar that closed down um so mm-hmm. i want to dive into a little bit more of this and ask if you can tell us a little bit more about how ambivalence comes up in your research with queer communities and how this kind of manifests in people's lives and also like the institutions and events that happen for the LGBTQ communities in a place like River City. Um, And how can exploring this ambivalence inform how we think about LGBTQ folks and their communities?
0: So simple questions you're asking me, Clayton. Yes, (laughs) totally simple. It's okay. It's good. I love it. So the first thing we need to do is understand what ambivalence means, right? So ambivalence is a feeling, a strong feeling in two directions. So that showed up in in, um, my research, my participants, kind of uh, both folks feeling really strong ties to River City and also folks feeling like... um, there was a lack of community and there was a lack of space for them. So I think about participant um, who I use the pseudonym Kai for. So Kai really talked about feeling strongly connected and um, wanting to be kind of involved in an activist way and make change in River City, but also felt really lonely. The opportunities for folks to date in River City if you're single, pretty minimal. So it was difficult for Kai, I think, to be part of the community, to be doing all this work and also feeling kind of lonely at the same time. So that's sort of one example. Um, And you know, I also saw a sense of ambivalence, particularly among BIPOC LGBTQ participants that I interviewed, feeling like, again, I wanna be part of this mostly white LGBTQ community, but also feeling drawn to BIPOC communities outside of River City. Um, Just as a side note, I have to give a little plug here to Latoya Eve's research on um, BIPOC folks' experiences in LGBTQ communities in small cities in the South. That's a mouthful. But there really is not that much research focused on the experience of BIPOC folks in small cities, particularly in LGBTQ communities. So um, I hope that folks pick up the kind of mantle of that work and kind of move forward. Folks also felt really ambivalent about the need for community in River City. Folks said, you know, we sort of need it, but not really sure what it should look like. And the kind of landscape of organizations in River City bear that ambivalence out a bit, right? Folks' ambivalent feelings affected what they actually did to support community or not. And the landscape of organizations looked like, um, my participant Karen described it as explosive and pooping out which I think is such a great, uh, slightly horrifying way to describe it, that the idea that there would be organizations that would kind of spring up events that would spring up based on individual people's need to build some kind of community, feeling a lack of community, and then folks would get kind of burnt out and those organizations would, would disappear. This was true for gay bars. There had been a gay bar historically in river city Um, And then it closed and then there was another queer bar that opened and then it closed. So there's this kind of up and down cyclical um, nature of LGBTQ organizations in River City. And there was the one nonprofit, multicultural nonprofit, that kind of housed um, a lot of different kinds of groups. So they were the only organization that was able to maintain a persistent LGBTQ youth group that would meet regularly and sometimes other events and provided some financial support to events like the annual pride picnic. So the other piece of that landscape of organizations is in some ways River City was a bit like a rural context like Mary Gray describes in that folks were forming temporary communities. So temporary communities around a particular event, particular time of year, pride picnic, folks usually would kind of put things together for that, maybe a drag show or two. Whether that counts as community is another whole question. It's kind of complicated. Um, And folks would find and describe um, what their local gay-friendly organizations were, right? You kind of had to find out by word of mouth. There's no Yelp for gay friendliness, right? It doesn't exist. That'd be hugely problematic. Um, And, you know, so one of the things folks told me when I first got there is one of the coffee shops, which I think I call brews in the book. Local coffee shop. Gay friendly, you'll be fine there, don't worry about it. So you would hear about places that were known to be gay friendly and of course, gay friendly to whom. Um, But the other sort of side of this is aside from that landscape is it's difficult to organize for long-term change if you don't have a persistent organization, a home, a persistent home. So some of these nonprofits that would spring up would do really good work for a year or two years and then disappear. Just completely disappear. I just checked one of the latest organizations today um, just to see if their website was still functional and it was down. And their last post on social media was in 2021, right? So maybe there's another organization that's springing up as we speak, I don't know. But that is part of when we think about kind of folks' ambivalence about the need for community not having a really strong investment in a community institution for a whole variety of reasons means that it's more difficult to do that kind of long-term work and folks get burnt out, that kind of pooping out feeling, right? So, you know, it's, um, on the other hand, on the other hand, there's always another hand. On the other hand, maybe the kind of la- that kind of landscape means that short-term change is a little more possible that there is the ability for a small group of folks to step in and do something really concrete really quickly and then fade away. So not sure exactly what that looks like going forward, but I can imagine um, that one example that comes up in the book is kind of what happened after the Pulse nightclub shooting in 2016. There was a group of folks who mobilized really, really quickly to respond to that. And that was a pretty powerful event. Where I saw almost all of my participants. Um, So, you know, maybe the flip side of that is, given that landscape, maybe it's more possible to organize in response to a really concrete short-term thing. So just thinking about the future and kind of organizing for the future, I don't know how sustainable it is for that work to be done by a single person. It's not. But to find those relationships to kind of mobilize when the proverbial poop hits the fan, right? Um, Maybe that's a way to think about how change happens in River City. So I know we went really far far afield from the idea of ambivalence, but I think that's kind of how my thinking informs what's possible and um, how participants' um, feelings and behaviors affected what's possible in a place like River City.
1: Yes, this is really interesting, and I appreciate you Mm -hmm. speaking to this because, I mean, just as you're talking about this, I'm thinking of situations that have come up in my own research. Like, there was Mm -hmm. one time, it was in a large city, but one of the activists that I was working with, um, she was sharing with me kind of the frustration of, Mm. you know, we had a pretty successful protest where a lot of people showed up Mm -hmm. um, for trans rights and trying to advocate for inclusion but Mm -hmm. she was like you never see this on a regular basis she's like Mm -hmm. it's only when bad things are happening that people in the queer community come together and she's like it's really great that they do come together Mm -hmm. but at the same time it would be great to have this kind of community on a more regular basis so there Mm -hmm. is a lot of ambivalence there but i think like you spoke about like the kind of burnout is very real and mm-hmm. you know it's hard to get a sustainable effort going and a movement going in some of these places where you know the population of queer folks isn't extremely large and like you said I mean looking mm-hmm. at places where I live I'll find some organization that I'm like oh this is super cool I want to find out more information mm-hmm. and they haven't posted anything on social media since 2017 mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. so um, I really appreciate you highlighting kind of the difficulties and ambivalences and kind of the complexities around that kind of work in mm-hmm. smaller cities. Um, yeah. So
0: I, before yeah, we move but, on, can I just say a little quick little sidebar, this is going to come up again. And I think what we'll talk about in a little bit, but you know, the relationship building that happens at those events, I think, you know, I totally understand the feeling of burnout and frustration. I think um, it's real. And especially in this moment where there is so much to do And folks have super complicated and busy lives. And so much of this work in River City um, and in other places is built on relationships. So anything that we can do that helps foster spaces for those relationships to form, I think is good um, so that when things happen, folks can leverage those relationships to call people to action. Right. But also it's frustrating to the folks who are doing that work. So, yes, all of those things are true. Mm -hmm.
1: so speaking of relationships thank you for that segue Uh um friendship for queer and trans folks is a significant focus throughout your book um Mm -hmm. one of the ways that you explore it is by looking at how friendship for queer and trans folks relates to their community context Mm -hmm. Um, like how does friendship which is separate in this case from like Romantic relationships, potentially mm-hmm. sexual relationships, and like family-like kinships. Um, how does friendship help sustain LGBTQ community in River City? Whether through like activists mm-hmm. or just LGBTQ-focused events and institutions, or more in like these informal networks and relationships.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. So the first thing I'll say is um, that friendships were essential. They were absolutely essential to LGBTQ community in River City, Um, that I would really, um, in both supporting individual LGBTQ people in their activism, but, you know, also in supporting folks' survival, like friendships were really critical um, for community in a lot of different ways. Folks showed up as friends in a lot of different ways. Um, and yeah, I, I would go so far as to say LGBTQ community would not exist without friends. And we can think a little bit about when we're talking about community, what is the relationship of friendship to community? Art? Do friends constitute community? Is that kind of enough? Um, I don't really answer that question in my book. Sorry. Uh, That is a hard one though. Yeah, it is. It is. So thinking about what we want out of communities and what we're hoping for, for the future. So when we're talking about friendships, though, um, In the context of River City, I think it's worth unpacking a little bit about what do we mean by these friends and how concretely did they support folks or not? So I will say that um, I did actually leave it open to participants. We did a little mapping activity where they mapped out their friends and they got to decide how they defined friendship. So for some of them, they actually did have romantic partners, exes. They had family members on their friendship maps. So for some of them, leaving it up to them, kind of how they considered friends actually did include some of those relationships as part of their friendship network. So that's one thing to know. But the other piece is, um, there really were kind of three ways that LGBTQ folks talked about their friends. So kind of as we were talking about before with this closeted post-gay idea, there were some friends who, um, who participants said, uh, were supportive of them because they didn't care about their identities. Now, for me personally, if, if a friend tells me I don't care about your identity, I'm a friend to you despite your identity, that doesn't feel great. But for other, this is where I differed, I think, from some of my participants. Some of them really found other benefits to those friendships and were fine with just the bare bones, most basic, I accept you as you are, I don't want to hear about that stuff but they provided other kinds of support, emotional support, material support. So one way that kind of folks talked about their friends was this, I don't care about your identity, I'm gonna support you anyway, kind of way. So the second way is that folks talked about um, the way that just sharing an identity with someone was not enough to generate a friendship. So my favorite example of this from the book is uh, participant, Charlie, who talked about uh, hanging out with someone who shared an identity with her. And Charlie was talking about someone who was poly, meaning in a polyamorous relationship. And the person Charlie was hanging out with said, who's poly? Like she just didn't have the same cultural touchstones that Charlie did. And so just because they shared an identity was not enough to generate a friendship and Charlie did not hang out with this person as in the future, right So it was not enough to just share some aspect of identity. Um, I think one of my other participants said that just because you're under the same umbrella doesn't mean the same raindrops have hit you. I think is kind of how they talked about that. Um, but it is a pretty of,
1: powerful way to explain yeah. that kind of idea.
0: Yeah, I like the kind of umbrella. Folks talk about umbrellas all the time, and this kind of LGBTQ supportive work, right? So, yeah, it's just because you share an identity with someone. And I, you know, for those of us who are part of the LGBTQ community, we know that we are not friends with all other LGBTQ people. We know that one person who's like, nope, 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 we don't share values, right? We don't share values. So the other way that folks LGBTQ folks talk about talked about their friendships was um, the kind of friendships who really had a shared sense of culture with them, right? They got all the insider jokes, number one. Maybe not all the insider jokes, but enough of them to have a shared sense of culture. And, you know, they also were willing and happy to talk about things like relationships, unlike some of these other friends who were like, I don't want to hear about your relationships. That's weird to me, right? Right those friends who have that sense of shared community shared culture were happy to talk about relationships who they were dating how's it going what's going on oh you're breaking up oh crap i'm really sorry those kinds of things in addition to those shared cultural jokes insider jokes things like that and symbols things like that so you know the the kind of question to ask about these friendships that i hinted at a little bit earlier is you know whether those friendships are enough to sustain community right Are those friends going to sustain individual LGBTQ people, given the role of LGBTQ people in putting together events and responding to immediate things that are happening in the world? Is that enough, right? Are those friends actually going to show up when they need to vote for your rights? Are they going to show up to the school board when the school board is threatening to take away anything in your schools related to the queer families that exist in those communities, right? So... That is the question that, yet again, I don't answer in the book, but I present as something to consider. Right? That do these friendships sustain community? Is sustaining individual LGBTQ people enough in the context of River City? Maybe, maybe. Or is it essential for and or is it essential for those friends to show up in really concrete ways when it's important? How do they show up when it's important? What does that look like? So. That's part of kind of what is ambivalent about those friendships, I think. Um, And it really varies from person to person in terms of their experiences. So again, not super satisfying. I will say one other thing. Um, Just kind of looking at the numbers of friends, we would imagine in a post-gay world, LGBTQ people and non-LGBTQ people would have the same number of friends on average, right? Um, guess what? Not the case. for <laughs> City, in my sample, right, small sample, so all kinds of caveats about a small sample here, but looking at the average number of friends for LGBTQ people, they actually had fewer average friends than non-LGBTQ people, but more of them were LGBTQ. So hopefully that makes sense. My rudimentary description of um, of numbers here on a podcast but uh so it's worth thinking about that too why is that what does that have to do with the context of river city
1: yeah that is very interesting and some nuances to that you do explore Mm -hmm. so i'm excited to be able to Mm -hmm. talk to you maybe about that in Mm -hmm. a bit or just look back into Mm -hmm. part of your writing and see how that comes up but um Thinking of this conversation Mm -hmm. that we're having about friendship and, you know, earlier we mentioned like what kind of people are welcome in this Mm -hmm. small city and like who may be welcomed and who may not, you do explore this concept of safety in chapter Mm -hmm. two. So um, you identified that as being a pretty important part to your study for LGBTQ community Mm -hmm. in River City. safety came from being read as normative so kind of like you mentioned a little bit earlier of like the Mm -hmm. visibility and invisibility piece like being read as having you know a queer sexual orientation or Mm -hmm. gender identity is more invisibilized if it's Mm -hmm. not you know accepted in normative views um Mm -hmm. and Thinking of how this also relates to geography and how mm-hmm. people or where people lived in the city, can you kind of unpack some of your observations around mm-hmm. safety and particularly how you know it was inflected with experiences and identities of race and class mm-hmm. and other marginalized experiences?
0: Yeah, totally. So one of the uh, most useful questions, I think coming from queer theory is asking this question, basically, how does normativity show up in this context? Who are the folks who are considered locally to be quote unquote, I'm using my air quote fingers here. I know you can't see me, but it's okay. Who are the quote unquote, unnamed normal folks? And how does that um, sense of normativity affect folks' sense of safety, right? Who gets to feel safe? What does that look like? And who doesn't get to feel safe? Right, so um, in the context of River City, just to be really clear, predominantly white community, um, 2020 census shows that River City is 85% white. That's actually a little bit lower from the previous census, around 90%. So folks who tended to um, fit those norms, what those norms were if you were white, for example, if you fit local gender norms, I'll talk about that more in a second. If you were from River City or from a neighboring town or city, Um, you tended to kind of fit in with those norms. So some other aspects of that that might make it a little easier for you is if you were partnered in a relationship, if you had a family, for example, if you were connected to, if not a Catholic church, some kind of Christian community, those were kind of key aspects to um, being able to fit in in River City. And every community has those dimensions of who's able to fit in and who's not, Um, so you know, I think the gender piece of this is a little bit complicated. So what we know is um, there's some research that shows that uh, that women in particular, who tend to have a little more butch presentation, tend to do okay in kind of rural and small town kinds of spaces. So for uh, for cis women, for butch cis women in particular, and for butch masculine presenting non-binary folks. Um, they fit with the local norms. That was possible. So um, so that tended to work out okay. Folks didn't report feeling super unsafe there. And for men, cis men and trans men, being masculine, having a masculine gender presentation allowed them to fly under the radar. So one of my gay participants talks about not being rah, rah, shish, kumbah, gay, right? Not being visibly gay or visibly queer or feminine in any way. So, you know, those are some of the gender dynamics that were at play. Interestingly, um, trans women participants who I interviewed talked about feeling validated when they were feminine presenting in those spaces. So I didn't interview any um, butch trans women. And I think that would be interesting to know whether folks felt like that kind of gender presentation worked because there is that. Kind of possibility for butch cis women and non-binary folks to be a little more accepted in these kinds of spaces so that was one way that gender and of course all this is inflected with race right so river city segregated city like many cities are so depending on where you were in the city that also really mattered um, basically what folks reported is that the bottom line was they felt safer if they could be invisible if they could fit in those gender norms and I described earlier how my identities made me, a little, made me kind of invisible in a lot of ways, too. I know folks can't see me, but a six foot tall, white, slight, a little bit fat, short hair, um, you know, queer, non-binary person. And I felt pretty accepted in those spaces. And I want to make it a little bit complicated, too. Safety is complicated. So one of the things about being a white researcher is that other white people will say things to you that are really honest. And sometimes implicitly racist. And so we were actually warned away from traveling in, living in the predominantly black neighborhood, despite the fact that we know that most interpersonal violence happens within racial groups. So if I, as a white person, am gonna be afraid of anyone, it should be other white people, right? That's what the research says. But we had, I had participants who would tell me, oh, I wouldn't go to that part of town. I don't feel safe in that part of town. They would use euphemisms for race. One that was really common in River City was the phrase people from Chicago. So lots of euphemistic terms for race that folks would use to say that they were, that white folks were fearful of particular neighborhoods despite a lack of evidence that they were actually not safe in those neighborhoods, right? So when we're thinking about safety, it's complicated in terms of claims of safety, in terms of invisibility, who gets to be invisible and who gets to have access to particular spaces and who doesn't, and how people think about what even constitutes safety. So for some people, the bare minimum was like, I'm not physically attacked on the street. Is that the limit of safety, right? Are there other ways to think about safety here too? So, um, so safety really, again, in the context of River City, related to whether folks could fit into those local norms and be invisible and feel invisible despite what their identities were. The only, I guess the other example I'll share is that um, one participant um, shared that as a trans man, as a white trans man, he felt much safer being able to pass as a cis man in River City that he would feel much less safe if people could tell that he was trans. So lots of different ways that that invisibility plays in that racial identities play into this conversation. Um, And I think those are similar in other kinds of predominantly white cities too, especially now, I think especially now.
1: Yes, I do appreciate you bringing up like the euphemisms that exist Mm -hmm. in these discussions and like, you know, how oftentimes, especially as you mentioned, like as a white researcher, people sometimes take that as license to share some things that they, don't exactly understand how Mm -hmm. problematic it can sometimes be, but it can also be very revealing of the different dynamics that exist in these spaces. Mm -hmm. Um, And thinking of safety, and Mm -hmm. I'm especially interested since you say now you work more in like diversity education kind mm-hmm. of work um, you discussed how allies of the LGBTQ community both support and benefit from the LGBTQ community in River City mm-hmm. and how this this can be context dependent and obviously relationships play into this and you know who's welcome who's not who's mm-hmm. has the privilege of you know that invisibility sometimes if we consider it a privilege in those contexts mm-hmm. um, Can you explain what you call diversity resources Mm -hmm. in these sections and how the ambivalence associated with these surfaces and the different relationships?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, if we are going to call ourselves allies in different ways, we really need to be asking ourselves, what do I receive from this relationship with this friend, this particular friend? And is what I'm giving back really balancing that out? And so the idea of diversity resources really is the way that I talk about it in, in my book is that it's kind of a medium of exchange. And it's um, things like cultural, symbolic resources, some of those inside jokes, knowledge, but it's also material resources. So it's things like time, it's things like money, it's things like labor, so It's a medium of exchange, in this case, kind of between friends, right? So we could think about this in another way too, but in the context of my book, that's kind of how I talk about it. And on the one hand, kind of as I was talking about friendships before, allies absolutely do offer a lot of resources to their LGBTQ friends. Again, LGBTQ community wouldn't exist in River City without the labor of allies, for sure. Folks, you know, did things like provided child care. They offered emotional labor for their friends, right? They listened to their friends. They provided them emotional support. Um, they showed up in all kinds of different ways. They would go to events. Um, I had one participant talk about building something in the backyard of one of his friends, like they needed help. So folks showed up and actually did do a lot of work and provided a lot of resources to support their LGBTQ friends. And... There were ways in which allies kind of drew resources, pulled resources from LGBTQ people. And what that meant was kind of using their LGBTQ friends to demonstrate how cool and progressive they were, um, wanting to sound cool, wanting to share that their LGBTQ friends are more interesting and that we're more fun than, than non-LGBTQ fo- folks. Just to be clear, I'm not fun or interesting, so don't. nobody better be thinking that. But to say, yeah, sorry, as an boring.
1: introverted queer person, like, yeah. sorry, I'm just yeah. not that fun. <laughs>
0: no, I'm not that fun. I'm not that interesting. Give me um, a book.
1: That's a yeah. fun night for me.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'll watch some Star Trek. It's fine. So <laughs> so they but they would say, you know, oh, these friends are different because they're interesting and fun. And isn't that great? And doesn't that show progress? How how much we've come along in our community? Um And some of this is regular friend stuff, right? Regular friend stuff. Of course, we provide emotional support to our friends. Of course, we want to think of them as fun and cool and interesting. But kind of the the main idea here is that um, some of this work really is about one friend specifically having a marginalized identity, right? So gaining knowledge about LGBTQ people's lives, sharing that knowledge, or demonstrating that knowledge to seem cool and hip, I don't know that I am doing that with knowledge about straight identities and lives. Like we've all seen a Disney movie. I like, I was raised by two wonderful straight parents, right? I know everything about straight. I don't know everything, but I know a lot about straight culture. I don't need to demonstrate my coolness by talking about that stuff, right? It's different when you get to show how cool you are, you know, about drag culture, you know, you know, about all these things um, as a way to kind of show to get a little bit of status, right. To get a little bit of status, So when we're thinking about kind of diversity resources, it's worth thinking about for those of us who are allies in different ways, does that really balance out? And again, are we willing to show up for folks? So I wanna give a big um, props to Sarah Ahmed's work uh, on diversity, diversity work in kind of informing this thinking. Um, And I can talk more about her stuff in a little bit if that's useful. I think it might be connected to where we're going next.
1: Maybe. I'm excited for it. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Sarah Ahmed, I love her. She's mm-hmm. Her work is amazing. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I'd love to get some more information about, like, these ways that you're thinking about diversity resources. Mm-hmm. Um, so thinking of that, can you tell us about what you observe to be a lack of intersectionality in diversity resources mm-hmm. in River City and how this relates to kind of the homogenization? Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. Wow, I cannot say the word, (laughs) (laughs) homogeneity of that community.
0: Yeah, yep, definitely. So um, I just want to be clear that this is an idea. This is not like a finding from my research. It's kind of an idea. And I would be curious to know from other folks if this resonates or if it really doesn't. This is one of those places where I feel like I am very open to being wrong. But one of the things I noticed in my research was the way that people would leverage their diversity resources about one particular marginalized group to say that they're welcoming of all marginalized people. So just because you've got that LGBTQ friend, of course, you are comfortable with all kinds of differences. So the way that people would exchange their diversity resources around one particular group for other groups, even as they maintained, kind of use that implicitly racist language, for example. And so I'm curious about, again, if folks are interested in digging into this, they really should start with On Being Included by Sarah Ahmed to think and talk about diversity work and how it shows up in our different, the context that we work in. And I see this, I'm glad that you mentioned my work because sometimes I see this a little bit in my work now where folks want to claim the marginalized identities of their children, of family members, of their friends, to share that because they have a child who's trans, or um, a child with a disability, of course they understand all of these different dimensions of inequality or difference. So I think in the context of River City, given its homogeneity, I wonder if that enabled those kinds of claims to diversity resources in a way that would look different in other kinds of contexts where there's a little more kind of cognizance of how inequality works differently for um, different groups of people and how they intersect um, I wonder if that would look different in a different context. I'm not really sure, but I think I always am a little bit paying attention to how folks who are at, or trying to be allies, maybe genuinely trying to be allies to different communities, leveraging the relationships that they have to make claims, not just to, to make claims to kind of expertise and knowledge in other areas that they maybe don't actually have. So it's kind of, it's a question, it's an idea more than it is a finding And I think definitely informed by the context of River City, and I'd be curious if what I'm suggesting is true, and if it's true in other contexts, similar ways, different ways, but how we exchange those diversity resources to say, we're welcoming, we are inclusive, um, without that actually being backed up by action, concrete action, I think is a question for me.
1: Yeah, thank you for going into that. And to kind of really emphasize this relationship aspect, Mm -hmm. circling back to our friendship discussion Mm -hmm. a little bit. Can Mm -hmm. you tell us about what you described as friendship homophily in the LGBTQ community in River City, specifically as it relates to race and class? And Mm -hmm. what might this suggest to us considering the importance of friendship in the community and the social and political issues the LGBTQ community faces?
0: Oh yeah, it's a big, uh, it's complicated as <laughs> many things. So let's just start with the idea of homophily, right? So the idea of friendship homophily is true kind of across the board in the U.S. It's the idea that people tend to be friends with people who are very similar to them, have share similar identities, particularly race, gender, um, other dimensions of a class, other dimensions of identity too. So, um, If we think about this in terms of purely from a numbers perspective, and who it's possible for folks to have friendships with, if you're living in a community that's predominantly white, the white folks have much more of a chance of finding friends, given this homophily, this desire to be friends with people who are similar, um, than uh, BIPOC folks do, right? So... Uh, We know that for a variety of historical reasons, for a variety of reasons that have to do with the way that racism is built into our lived environment, the institutions where people actually form friendships, for example, that it's difficult, it's challenging to maintain cross-racial friendships. Cross-racial friendships happen. Um, There's some research on that, too, if folks are interested. I think uh, Anne Corgan, I think is her name, someone who's written about that in the past. And we know that River City is diversifying, right? So we know that proportions of BIPOC folks are increasing. Um, So, you know, that's part of kind of the broader context of kind of friendship within River City. And, you know, if you are a BIPOC LGBTQ person in River City, you know, thinking about what your chances are to find friends who are similar to you, pretty minimal, pretty minimal. I know Charlie, participant Charlie Black, um, queer woman, talked about how she felt like often in her friendships she was the token Black friend, right? And so those are not the kinds of friendships that feel authentic and sustaining to folks. So in terms of the future, though, what I am not suggesting is that all of a sudden, white folks go out and try to b- be friends with a bunch of BIPOC folks, right? Like, I'm not suggesting that we do that in a, you know, this is, this is you're going to be my token friend, right? But how do people form friendships to begin with, right? This is a question many of us have right now. Many of us are struggling with finding friends and having and sustaining friends, right? So one thing that we know from the research is people find friends through institutions, through organizations that we're involved in. And I think thinking about the future of friendship and the future of equality and and justice in the context of River City, I think... Um, for white LGBTQ people in particular, it's kind of on us to start showing up to public events. Like um, I attended a Juneteenth event, for example, and didn't see a ton of my white LGBTQ participants at that event, Um, to start showing up to public facing events to start to build some of those connections, to try to make some of that change and to start showing up. That's basically the shortest way I can say it is to start showing up In a way, that's not, I need to save the day, right? No white saviorism to show up with some humility and some openness to building relationships that can help contribute to change in the longer term and to help challenge this idea of friendship homophily a little bit, because um, I don't know that it's a great thing that we're friends mostly with people who are similar to us. I think there's a lot of discourse about that right now politically and the importance to uh, importance of understanding folks who have differences from us. So, you know, I think the work of equality and the work of justice requires that those who have more power try to put themselves out there a bit. So that's kind of my thinking here is that if we think this friendship homophily, if we think the idea of friendship segregation is not a good thing, Start showing up in different ways, in ways that are humble, in ways that are uh, with our hands open, willing to be helpful, um, but not wanting to save the day or take things over. So, that is my thought about kind of relationships and the future of kind of racial justice within LGBTQ communities, um, because relationships are so important in contexts like River City. They're so important. They're so important for change, they're important for getting things done. I think that's also true in cities. I think that's also definitely true in rural communities, too. So, those relationships are important.
1: Yeah, I appreciate you speaking to that, and especially like circling back to the idea you mentioned before of just like, you know, this ordinary city idea. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times we just kind of take these spaces as just a place to maintain the status quo and, Mm -hmm. you know, diving into these realities of what's Mm -hmm. performative and what's true allyship is really important so Mm -hmm. thank you for speaking to that Mm -hmm. before we wrap up Mm -hmm. I wanted to just like take a moment and see if there's anything that we didn't get a chance to speak to while we've been meeting here together
0: (sighs) yeah you know I think we covered a lot (laughs) Yes, I think I'm I'm just going to pause for a quick second and think to myself is there anything that I really want to bring forward you know I guess I would just say um That I remain really grateful to my participants in River City, to folks who gave their time. One of the things I really tried to do as a researcher was, and again, part of that reciprocal relationship. So often researchers will come into a community and do a bunch of interviews, take some information, maybe pay folks for their interviews. Great. Awesome. Um, But I really tried to be cognizant of what I could offer back to the community while I was there. So part of that work in my positionality was you know, I am an educator. That's what I do. I have done workshops about gender and sexuality. I've taught numerous courses about gender and sexuality. And so I always would offer if folks wanted me to come and talk um, to an organization, to a class, I made myself available to that. And basically, if a participant asked me to show up at something, I would do that. And so I think it's really important. I know this is circling way back to the start of our interview, but you know, I am always thinking about kind of my power in relation to the folks whose um, stories I'm asking for, right? I'm asking folks to share a lot. So, you know, just uh, thinking about, reflecting about, I'm always wondering if I did enough. And I don't think I did. I think that's true. But to always be asking and thinking, sort of, have I done enough? What else can I do in this research? How can I um, use the skills I have to be beneficial to the folks around me. So I'm not just sailing in and grabbing a bunch of stories and leaving, right? So I really am truly grateful for um, participants taking the time to enthusiastically share their stories with me. Um, I had several folks cry in their interviews with me and it's really challenging. sometimes for folks to share their stories. So just a big thank you to the folks in River City for sharing their stories, for being willing to be part of this project. And I hope I did y'all justice. (laughs) I hope I did y'all justice.
1: I appreciate you using y'all there too. Just Mm -hmm. capture some of the Midwestern tone.
0: Yeah, nice gender neutral term. I mean, y'all, just get used to it, folks. It's an easy one. I like it.
1: Yes, definitely a fan. Mm So. Thank you so much for speaking to your book. It is Mm -hmm. a great resource for these topics of friendship in the queer community and Mm -hmm. what the context of the Midwest means for um, this kinds of research. Um, Do you have other recommendations Mm -hmm. for resources people can look into if they're interested in diving deeper Mm -hmm. into these kinds of topics?
0: Mm -hmm, Totally. I mentioned a few along the way. I think Um, there, my colleague Japonica Brown-Saracino has work about, um, lesbian communities in small towns. I think that is worth digging into also is great research. Um, I think also just kind of thinking locally for folks, just generally finding the organizations that are doing this work, any archives that are doing this work. Um, I think, you know, some of the books I referenced along the way, or some of the work I referenced along the way can give you a deeper dive into some of this thinking, Um, I think there's been some great research coming out also about ambivalence. Um, So I know that Ghassan Musawi, who is a sociologist, has written a piece about ambivalence recently that is wonderful. Um, And also, uh, so this is going to seem like a little bit of a hard left turn, but I was talking about this piece today. um, And I think actually this relates to potential future work I might be interested in doing in some ways. but. I have a, a couple of colleagues, Steph Schuster and Laurel Westbrook, who wrote this wonderful piece about trans joy. I think um, we it can feel a little bit kind of doom and gloom, I think, when we're studying LGBTQ communities in this moment. And I hope that some of the writing that I did about friendship kind of touches on a little bit more of that joy. And it's a really wonderful piece to remember why it's important not just to focus on the doom and gloom, right? To think about what's joyful, about our membership in different communities, about what that future looks like, and how to think about it with a little bit more of that joyful lens. So I guess I'll throw that in there too. I know it's a little bit out of what we've discussed, but it's something I'm thinking about right now.
1: Yeah, that feels very fitting and a great way to conclude our conversation. So Mm -hmm. thank you so much for being willing to meet with me and talk through this exciting new book. This was fun. Yeah, it was definitely insightful. So I appreciate all the work that you shared and Mm -hmm. the insights that you've provided.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate it. It's fun. I love having these kinds of conversations. So thanks for the invite.
1: Yes, thank you.